Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Today's scripture reading is a selection from Matthew 5, 17 through 48. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Uh, I imagine that uh, many of you, like me, over the last couple of years have really enjoyed the delightful uh, television show, The Good Place, and if not, I can explain it, and don't worry, there's a plot twist at the end of season one, so I won't blow that for anybody, but it stars good old Ted Danson making a comeback and Kristen Bell, and the basic idea of this show is that the main characters all die, and they arrive in this wonderful town, The Good Place, and they are being rewarded according to how well they live their lives and all the good things they do on a point system that's tracked, right? And lots of funny and crazy things happen, but there's actually a a much deeper theme going on throughout the whole show, and it's reflected in the title, and it is the question of, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to really be and do good? And I was doing a little 
research on this, and originally the show was planned by the writers to be an exploration in a comedic way of how different world religions answer and or ask and answer that question of what it means to be good. But as it went along, the writers of the show decided to instead approach it philosophically instead. So instead of using religions throughout the show, in each episode, it's amazing, they introduce an actual philosopher and talk about these different philosophers' opinions about what is the good and what does it mean to be good, etc. And I know that sounds boring maybe, but it's, it's amazing. It's such a clever and beloved characters on it that it, that it really works well. But the idea, again, behind it of how would different religions answer that question, what does it mean to be good, it actually appears just in the first episode a little bit before they end up getting rid of it, where the, the main character, Ellen Shellstrop, that's Kristen Bell's character, she arrives in this utopia town, and she meets the guy in charge, Michael, that's Ted Danson, and she just has to ask, after she's died, which religion was right, which one was right. And, and in a very funny scene, Michael points to this cheesy-looking painting behind his desk of a normal-looking dude and says to Helen, Hindus are a little bit right, Muslims a little bit, Jews, Christians, Buddhists, every religion guessed about 5%, except for Doug Forsett here. Doug was a stoner kid who lived in Calgary in the 70s, and one night he got really high on mushrooms, and his best friend Randy said, hey, what do you think happens after we die? And Doug just launched into this long monologue, and he got like 92% correct, right? So it's, it's a very funny scene, I think. But uh, more seriously... What's so insightful about this show, The Good Place, is that it does reflect, and even that question that they're asking, reflects a millennia-long human wrestling with what it means to be and do good, or to use biblical language, what it means to be righteous. That's the question. And throughout all of human history, the question of goodness or righteousness has been asked and answered by every different religion, every different philosophy, whether it's um, Shintoism or Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, Epicureanism, secularism. Everyone is asking and answering that question. What does it mean to really be good? Within Judaism, within the Old Testament, it's very clear what the answer is. God has created the world and he's revealed himself and he's given a law or a set of instructions that we call the law or Torah. And it's seen most easily probably in the Ten Commandments, but then these other laws as well. And then Christianity builds on that and has its own answer to the question of what it means to do and be good or be righteous. Now, I'm raising this question here at the beginning about what it means to be good or righteous because this is the topic that drives this text that we have in front of us today. And here at Sojourn, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and a couple of weeks ago, we arrived on the shores of what's the most famous part of the Gospel of Matthew, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And as I said a couple of weeks ago when we were there, when we started, we could easily and joyfully spend you know, several years just in the Sermon on the Mount, just in these chapters, and there'd be great benefit to that. But I think, and we think here as the leaders, that there's also some advantage to taking larger sections of the sermon in kind of bigger chunks because I believe, and I think we'll see today, there are things we can only understand about the sermon if we sort of get a little distance from it. I like to think of it as like divine crop circles, like you have to get high enough up to kind of see what's going on. Or it'd be like looking through a high-resolution microscope at some cells. They're interesting and and 
fascinating. You can learn some things from them, but if you're too close to them, you actually can't see what it is or what's going on. You need to sort of pull back some and see that, oh, this is part of a, a wing that's part of an insect and it makes sense of the structure. So two weeks ago, we tackled the Beatitudes in one message because I think, again, taken together, they say something. They're, they're more than the sum of their parts. And so too with today. We've chosen to handle a very large section, so large that we couldn't even print it all in your bulletin. We had to do kind of selections from it, I think fair selections of it. Um, but if, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to be looking along with me today because you'll see the full thing there. And believe me, more than once this week, I have asked myself, what was I thinking <laughs> to try to tackle this much of a text? But it's okay because I really do believe that Matthew 5, 17 to 48 is making one big and life-changing point. And so there's great value in looking at it together. And so we're going to look at it from this higher level, this overview level. And I just need to tell you right at the beginning, there are a bunch of questions that are going to come up from this text that I am not going to have the ability or time to answer for you. Even every time I hear it read in both services now, there are so many questions that come to mind and so many challenging things in this text, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to answer all of them. I encourage you to keep reading, keep studying. There's lots of good books out there. Uh, maybe discuss in your community group, um, because there's just a lot of complicated and important things in here. So I'm not going to be able to answer all of that. But what I want to do, and my plan, by God's help, is to address this text in two parts. First, we're going to look at 5.17 to 20 and see what that's saying. And then we're going to look at 5.21 to 48. And then I'll tie it all together, asking what a God is saying to us. So I think it'd be fitting if I just pause once more before we jump into this and just pray uh, that God would help us. So let me pray. Once again, our Father, we thank you that you continue to speak and that Holy Scripture is older than all of us and will last longer than all of us because you're speaking through it. And I pray that even now you would come and help us understand and open our hearts and our minds by the power of the Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so either look in your bulletin or if you have a Bible, let's start with 5, 17 to 20. I just want to read it again. It's good to get this in front of us. Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the, or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For... I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, there's a lot there, I realize. Let me just highlight a few things. Notice in verse 17 that Jesus is very aware that it would be very possible to misunderstand what Jesus is saying and doing and teaching in all his ministry. He's been all the things we've been seeing in the last four chapters of Matthew, teaching and healing people and preaching. And so he addresses 
this potential misunderstanding that you can't misunderstand what he's doing. And he says that he has not come into the world to abolish or destroy everything God commanded or everything God did through the history of Israel. He's not doing that. And it would be easy for people in Jesus' own day to assume that's what he's doing because of the things he says and teaches. And it's easy for us, if you're a Christian here today, to do the same. It's easy for Christians to think that Jesus' teachings and actions somehow completely negate or disregard the Old Testament because they're so new. But that's not true. He's saying right here at the beginning, the Old Testament is not bad. It's not to be unhitched or removed from our Bibles. Christians have always had a two-testament canon. We've always had an Old and a New Testament bound together. And that's what Jesus is saying here. But at the same time, Jesus clarifies on the other side, he says that while he certainly didn't come to abolish or destroy everything God has done in the past, he also didn't just come to repeat the status quo or keep everything the same. He says that he came instead to fulfill the law and the prophets, to fulfill them. And that word fulfill, if you go back and look through the last four chapters of Matthew before before this, you'll see that word comes up over and over again because what this means is Jesus is saying all that God has been doing from Genesis 1-1 on all through Israel's history and the temple and the sacrifice, everything is now coming to its final moment, its great moment, the climactic moment of the story of, of the universe itself, and he is the agent of that, and he is bringing it all together and fulfilling. He's bringing it to its end goal or its maturation. And so that balance is very Uh, Very important to understand and very easy to misunderstand. It's like a knife edge that you can easily fall off either side. On the one side, we could misunderstand Jesus and think that nothing has really changed and that Jesus is just a prophet that is just reminding everybody what the Old Testament said and, and therefore we're obligated to do all those things. Now, how we really work this out, sometimes some people would try to read the Old Testament this way, and they really just cherry-pick the things they want to do. Maybe you don't like shellfish anyways, or maybe you're opposed to tattoos, or you believe in circumcision, whatever it is. Um, Sometimes people hold on to some elements of this, but the New Testament's clear. You can't pick and choose. Either you're part of that Old Covenant, or you're not. You can't just choose parts of it that you want. And there's a lot of confusion, potentially, in that, and I would encourage you, we Several months ago, we preached through the book of Galatians, and I think really we tried hard to sort of explain that nuance of that issue. But on the other side, we also can't think that the newness that Jesus brings makes the Old Testament irrelevant to us. It doesn't. That's not true either. We don't get rid of the Old Testament. And that's what I think verses 18 and 19 are getting at. Jesus is affirming what God has done in the past, but he's also transforming it. I said there was a lot in here, and I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions, But that gets us then to chapter 5, verse 20. And the question we started with, what does it mean to be good or to be righteous? If you were to ask yourself, what would Jesus' answer to that question be? What would it it mean to be good or be righteous? Well, his answer is shocking. And frankly, it's disturbing. It's troubling. He says, let's listen to it again. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness, your doing good, surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. That sounds crazy. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, I brought a friend today because I told them this was a cool place, and this is what you're telling me? 
Because you see, Jesus is addressing this question of goodness and righteousness head on. And he says he's not come to abolish these issues. He's come to fulfill them. And then he drops this devastating bomb. You want to know what the good is? You want to know what true righteousness looks like? It has to be more and greater than the scribes and Pharisees. And note, Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't worry about righteousness or doing good. That's Old Testament. That's so BC. I'm not into that question. I just, I just want everybody to be cool and chill. No. He addresses it, the question of righteousness, and he doesn't lessen it, but he pushes it further. And why, why do I say he pushes it further? It's because we have to understand that in Jesus' day, who the, who the scribes and the Pharisees were. The scribes and the Pharisees were the religious conservatives. They were the morally upright people. They were the good guys in terms of doctrine and righteousness. They believed in the Bible. They worshiped God. They gave a lot of energy to obeying God. They tithed faithfully. They weren't morally or doctrinally loose or liberal. And compared to the average person, people like Peter, James, and John, fishermen, people like Matthew who's a tax collector, the Pharisees in Jesus' day knew way more about God and the Bible, and they were way more devoted and pious than anybody else that's listening to Jesus. And Jesus says that true righteousness looks like more than what those guys do. It's crazy. And we're in March Madness, so all I could think of was saying, in effect, Jesus is saying, all you people here, unless you can block and then score on Zion Williams, or my son would prefer James Harden, I think, in the NBA, but unless you can do that, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's saying. Or maybe, unless you can paint better than Rembrandt, you'll never get into the kingdom. Or maybe, better, unless you can write music better than Beethoven or Taylor Swift or whoever, whatever illustration works for you, this is how crazy what Jesus is saying is. And how could this be? I mean, this, again, this does not sound like good news. This does not sound like the gospel we've understood about Jesus. So what could it mean? Well, this leads us then to the second move in the second part of our text. And this is why it's so important that we read all these verses together because Jesus does say this amazing thing in 520 and everything in us wants to ignore it probably, but he doesn't leave us hanging there. He goes on in the remaining verses to explain exactly what he means. And this is why we need to take these, this whole text together because in 521 to 48, this big section, I think Jesus clarifies exactly what he means about our need for a greater righteousness. And he does this by giving us six examples of what he means that our righteousness needs to be greater than the scribes or Pharisees. Six examples. He doesn't just leave us hanging. And as I mentioned before, we could look at each of these and there'd be value in looking at every one of them, but I think there's also a great value in taking them together. So I just want to read them for you again so we can hear them. And I want you to pay attention what Jesus is saying in these six examples. First, he says in verse 21, you've heard it said that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You've heard that it was said do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her written notice of divorce, but I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for in a case of sexual morality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Again, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then you've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there's a lot of powerful things in there. There's a lot of disturbing things in there. But do you see the repeated pattern? Each time, Jesus begins with, you've heard, and then he quotes either some direct teaching from God's law or some way that it's been interpreted by the Jewish leaders. And then after quoting this, he gives his own interpretation of the teaching. And you'll see in your translation we just read, it says something like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And because of that, this section of the Sermon on the Mount has been given a name. We often call it the antithesis because the, the, it's seen that it's sort of has this contrast there, this antithesis. I'd like to suggest to you that's actually not the only way to translate these words and I think maybe puts the emphasis not quite in the right place. Because Jesus is not contrasting what he's saying with God had said, but I think he's explaining or unpacking the true meaning of what God has commanded, including some correction to those who might misunderstand it. So I prefer to call this section the exegeses, that is the, the explanations of Jesus' true intent of the law. Because you remember, Jesus has just said he didn't come to abolish, he's not trying to set up a contrast, he came to fulfill and I think that's exactly what he's explaining here. So what is he saying? If this is six examples or six exegeses, what ties them together? Did you see it? Well, here's how I would describe it. Jesus is calling us to the greater righteousness of the heart. Jesus is calling us to the greater righteousness of the heart. Let me explain what I mean. In each of these cases, you see, there is God's external command, which is good, but underneath the command, God has always cared about a deeper issue of the inner person or our hearts. It's easiest, I think, to see this in the, in the first, second, and last examples, but it's in all of them. Murder, he, God commanded not to murder, but God cares about more than murder, Jesus says. He doesn't want us to be filled with hate in our hearts for others, because that's what leads to murder. Don't commit adultery. Both of these are from the Ten Commandments. That's great. It's what Jesus commands or what God's commands. But he says, but you've got to look underneath it and recognize that underneath adultery, there's something else going on, which is lust. Divorce, maybe that one seems like it's most just on the surface, but if you fast forward to Matthew 19, he'll, Jesus will make very clear that divorce always, and, and it's messy, I realize that, and there's always, it's very complex, but divorce always has a hardness of heart issue going on. Oaths, the heart issue, Matthew 23, if you fast forward there, you'd see that this issue comes up again. Of Oaths are ways that we sort of try to manipulate 
others and even God rather than looking in our hearts. Retaliation, the heart issue Jesus is addressing of how we respond to others. And if you didn't, admit, if you didn't get the heart thing, you definitely get it at the end. Not just loving those who are your friends, but even loving. Now, not just, Jesus doesn't just say, don't be mean to your enemies or um, don't throat punch your enemies or you know, just snub them, but don't do, don't do it publicly. No, he says, love your enemies. It's all about the inner person. And I'm not just getting this sort of heart-focused greater righteousness from these verses. Actually, if you keep reading in Matthew, you'll see this later on in the sermon and actually earlier in John the Baptist's teaching, Jesus uses the image of a tree and fruit. And if you think about that idea, the point is fruit is the external righteousness, the things that are good and right to do according to God's kingdom. But Fruit that doesn't come from a tree is not good, he says. That is, good fruit comes from a good tree. Or I think of Matthew 15, a very, another very helpful place to understand the same teaching. The same Pharisees that Jesus is talking about here, they come to Jesus and they're mad at him because he and his disciples are not washing their hands in these sort of Jewish rituals of washing their hands before they eat. Before they eat, And so Jesus calls them hypocrites, and he quotes the prophet Isaiah to them and says this, this people honors me with their lips. So they're, they're praising God, they're doing what's right, but what's lacking? Their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. And so Jesus called the people to him and he said, hear and understand. He's saying this to you and me. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person or that is defiles meaning is unrighteous, but it's what it comes out of the mouth. This defiles the person. So the disciples are like, okay, we think we understand that. But they come to him and say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And Jesus says, every plant that my heavenly father is not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. If the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter still doesn't quite understand. And he says, explain the parable to us. And Jesus says, are you still not, are you still without understanding? And here it is, verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth, passes into the stomach, is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds where? From the heart. And that, that is what defiles a person, makes someone righteous or unrighteous. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, same two examples you just gave, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, the inner person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Do you see? It's the same emphasis on the heart that true goodness, true righteousness is rooted in our inner person. This is why in Matthew 23, we'll see when we get there, what does he call the Pharisees? Whitewashed tombs. Because they look good on the outside, but what's their problem? The inside. Jesus is saying, you see, that it is not enough. And it is not enough to to just focus on the external life of righteousness because that's not what God really ultimately cares about. You, you haven't murdered? Good, that's good. Murder is bad. But is your life filled with hatred for others and resentment and bitterness? You haven't committed adultery? Good. That's devastating to relationships. But is your heart filled with lust sexually or other kinds of lust and desire? 
I think the, the, it's not an accident, the last one, the love for enemies, particularly strong in 543 to 48. Whenever I read these verses, I always think, isn't that taking a little too far, Jesus? Can I at least hate my enemies because they do suck, right? But this is, I think, the most powerful one. It's the climactic moment. Not just loving those who are nice to you and you're already close to and those who tell you you're great, but even those who are mean to you and snub you and oppose you. Why? Why would those people, why should we pray for those people and love them? Because that's how God is. That's how God himself is, it says, and we are his children. And this, you see, is what is meant in that very last kind of confusing verse in 548 when it says then he sums this whole thing up by saying you need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That can be really confusing because of what we mean by the English word perfect. What's being used here in this translation is kind of a somewhat confusing older sense of perfect that we don't use very often, but it means whole or complete. So we might say a couple years ago, best illustration of this, people were saying that the Cleveland Browns had a perfect record. Remember that? They lost every game. So at least they were consistent, right? That's, that's this older sense of perfect, like complete, whole, the parts are all the same. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that your exterior righteousness needs to be matched, and mine needs to be matched by an interior heart. And that, friends, is what the greater righteousness that Jesus is pushing us towards to say, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, it's not enough to just have it be external. It's got to be internal as well. Now, here's the question. Why in the world is Jesus saying all this? What is the problem he's addressing? Well, I think it's this. For many of us in this room, like the Pharisees, Jesus is highlighting our human tendency to make righteousness and religion be external issues and to keep them there, to be things we do only rather than looking inside. Every other religion says that as well, right? Keep everything about a matter of doing rather than looking on the inside. You see, many of us go through life like we go through, like we handle car maintenance issues. Your minivan's making a horrible sound, turn up the radio. Check engine light comes on, electrical tape, that solves that, right? Smoke alarm, keep waking you up in the middle of the night, take the battery out, obviously, right? So too, we all have trouble being completely honest and looking inside our hearts and really facing our motives. I think it's hard to face the chaos of what's going on inside our hearts. It's so much easier, so much easier to just keep doing stuff than to look inside. For me, this is one of the things that I hate and love about preaching regularly here and elsewhere is that I feel the weight very much of standing up here as God's spokesman on a Sunday morning and I cannot do this without a clear conscience and being completely honest before God in my life, which stinks. That means I have to get really holy these weeks, right? But more than that, seriously, it means that I have to face stuff in my marriage and in my relationships with others, my fears, my anxieties, my frustrations, because I, I know that this is true. I know that God sees the inside of me and that's where he wants to do a work. And so I can't just go through the motions avoiding my emotions if I'm going to be a whole person, and neither can you. 
Most of us don't want to look inside, I think, our hearts, because if we're honest, there's a lot of fear there, there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of pain, there's regret, there's guilt, and it's just so much easier to keep everything and everyone, including God, at a safe distance. And and do you know one of the best ways to keep God at a safe distance? Get really involved in church. Come to church, give money, go to all the events, help out. Because then you don't have to have the sort of exterior guilt. You can kind of tell yourself it's okay and never really look on the inside. Some of us avoid looking inside by performing. That's what I do. I just power through and try to perform. Some of us avoid looking inside by being uptight towards others. And when you see an uptight person that's, that's blowing up on other people, that's something going on inside of them. Some of us avoid looking inside by apathy. I do this too. I just feel defeated, so I just give up, work on my black ops EKA ratings, if that means anything to you. Uh, some of you, some of us, avoid by serving. We avoid looking inside by getting really involved and doing really good things. Some of us avoid looking inside by going on crusades against such and such. Some of us avoid looking inside by filling our lives with just busyness and escape so we never have to actually look inside. And we can get really, really good at looking good. So good that we can forget, actually, that we should even look inside. Maybe some of you stopped looking inside in your heart a long time ago because maybe even when you were a child, you stopped looking because it was just too much pain, too much to deal with. But Jesus says, external-only religion, even when it's good, and solid, and theologically correct, and morally upright, and maybe you're standing for the truth, whatever it is, that's not the kind of righteousness that God actually cares about, as good as it might be in itself. God does care about what we do, because what we do shapes us and affects other people as well to be his children. So it is bad to murder, and it actually is worse to murder than to hate. It is bad to commit adultery, and it's actually worse to commit adultery than to lust. But what Jesus is saying is that if that's all we have is avoiding of these bad things, then we don't have the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. So I can sum all this up with both some bad news and some good news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is that God sees and cares about our hearts. You and I cannot keep just performing our way through life or avoiding our way through life and Christianity without paying attention to what's going on inside because God sees our inner person and that's where he wants there to be true righteousness and goodness. When you and I look over these six examples, and we could give other examples, when we look over these six examples that Jesus gives of greater righteousness, any honest person will see that we are all broken. Our lives are marked by anger and lust and hardness of heart in relationships, even marriage, self-serving, conniving, the desire to retaliate verbally and physically, hatred for those who hurt us and, don't, and not love for them. That is true of every one of us. And all of this 
focus on the heart is a hard teaching. It may make us want to walk away. It made the Pharisees walk away. And maybe today you're feeling that too. It's, it would just be so much easier. I just cannot deal with all the stuff in my heart. So much easier not to look into ourselves. Can I just sort of go through the motions with all this? But I want to say to you, there's no wholeness there. There's no life. That's not the, the wholeness or the perfection that is God himself. So that's the bad news that God sees and cares about our hearts. The good news is that God sees and cares about our hearts. That's the good news. God, our creator and father, knows us in our inner person, even better than we know ourselves, and he loves us. He came to fulfill the law. He took upon himself the pain and the penalty and the shame of all of our failures and all our rebellion and all our brokenness. The, the point of Jesus giving these words is not to shame us. The good news is he sees and cares about our hearts. He actually knows what's true of you and what knows what's true of me. And he's giving these words to invite us into wholeness and into life, not to shame us. He took that shame upon himself. And now he is gladly working by the power of the Spirit, Holy Spirit to change us not just on the outside, but to actually shape us and reform us into being truly good and beautiful creatures in his image. Jesus has no interest in taping plastic fruit on a rotten tree. No interest in that. He's not just trying to tell you and me to do a bunch of stuff because all that would be would be taping plastic fruit on a rotten tree. Instead, he says, I have come. I know who you are in the inner person and I, by the power of the Spirit, am gladly transforming your tree into goodness through me. This week I was thinking about Jeremiah 31, one of the most beautiful promises of the Old Testament where God says he's going to make a new covenant and the New Testament understands that this is exactly what Jesus is doing. And, and do you remember what it says in Jeremiah 31 about what this new covenant's gonna look like? God says, in this new covenant... I will put my law in their minds and write it where? On their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. That is God's heart, that he wants goodness in the inner person. So today, this week, start paying attention to God in that inner place. Don't be content with mere external righteousness. Pay attention, not in a morbid way, but in a, in a humble way. Pay attention to your emotions, especially the strong ones like hate and anger and lust and fear, and use those as, as God-given windows into what's really going on inside. And then, in that place and in that moment, turn to God, because he knows it already, and he welcomes you. My faithful wife of 26 plus years, she always asks me the most penetrating questions about my sermon. So I actually usually try to avoid her when I'm writing a sermon because I would just be content to stand up here and say a bunch of smart sounding stuff, right? But she is always asking the exact right question. And yesterday she asked me, as I humbly went to her and said, I need some help with my sermon. She said, what does Jesus want us to think and feel about these verses? It's a great question. What does Jesus want us to think and feel about these verses? And my answer to that, I'm going to answer it with the words of another 
wiser man than me. And he describes it this way, and we'll put this on the screen so you can see it. He says, Jesus' teachings drive the sharp edge of the plowshare into the earth and carve out, as the poets say, a, a deep wound, a broad furrow. And with the same movement, the plow turns the earth over to uproot the weeds and prepares the ground for the seeds which, fall, which will fall into the renewed soil to shelter there, to germinate and to fructify. In the same way, the word penetrates us with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to break up our interior soil. It cuts through us with the sharp edge of trials and with the struggles it provokes. It overturns our ideas and projects and reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires, bewilders us, leaves us poor and naked before God. And all this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of new life the seed of the gospel which will bear fruit a hundredfold at harvest time if we have known how to welcome it and guard it with the patience of faith and tenacity of hope. That is a beautiful image. That all these hard teachings, all the things we've read now a couple of times and all the other things Jesus says, they are like a plow that is turning up the soil of our hearts. And if you're feeling that this morning when you read those, that's good. That's a good thing if you will learn to welcome it because that turning up of our soil is what enables the seed of new life to be planted. And that's why, friends, we love to end every service by reminding ourselves that we cannot make this happen on ourselves. We are dead and desperate, but Jesus has come and on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he used this as an image to say, I'm giving my body that is going to be broken and my, this wine represents my blood that is being poured out because he is taking all that shame and all that lack of righteousness we have, he's taking that upon himself and then giving himself back to us to make us like him. And that's good news. So if you're a Christian today, I would encourage you that what we do here is you come forward and you take a piece of the bread and you dip it in the wine or the juice. And I would encourage you, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, don't come forward. There's, there's nothing... You know, shame with staying in your seat. But if you're a Christian, come forward. And while you do so, would you invite God to open your heart? You can't do that even on yourself, but ask God, open my heart and do the next level of transformation that I need, even in the moment as we think about his body and blood given for us. Let me pray. Thank you. God, for doing above and beyond what we could ask or imagine. Thank you, God, and Jesus, for being very faithful to us. And thank you, God, for Holy Scripture that does continue to challenge us and arrest us and teach us and console us, give us hope. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters this afternoon, tonight, this week, would you seal in us a, a new and deeper work? We, we want to be wholehearted people, 
So come, Lord Jesus, by the Spirit. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.